Um, at this time, I have a great pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning. Um, we have uh, Michael Barr and his family. Uh, his wife, Jennifer, and his two sons, Stephen and Lincoln, are here today. And uh, they're from up by uh, Lamar's. And, uh, you know, everybody knows that's kind of the ice cream capital of America. So we always got to talk about that. I think we all like ice cream. At least I do. Um, anyway, at this time, I have a great pleasure to... Michael, you can introduce yourself, too. Uh, good morning. The, uh, so last week, Pastor Jake was here, and I said, you know, they like ice cream, so you need to bring some with you. He didn't either, and I didn't. Um, but I think my wife's willing to make a trade, some ice cream for some pie. So she, uh, she's all about the, 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 the pie and prayer, so we may have to look into that. Um, anyway, uh, I am thrilled to be back. I was glad Peter asked me to, to fill the pulpit for you. Um, I wasn't super excited uh, about following Jake. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. It was fine. Uh, Jake's, Jake's a good guy. Um, I'm, I, I said that we should preach a series, and, and we, should, we were kind of trying to preach a series and put together a, a list of messages, and we never really got together on what, what exactly we were going to preach, but actually it worked out because um, last week he preached on um, Jarius' daughter, the, the, the miracle of Jesus raising Jarius from Jarius' daughter, and this week I'm preaching on the parable of the prodigal son. So uh, if, if, if we had a series, it's, hey, the miracles, uh, the works and words of Jesus, a miracle and a parable. Um, so there you go. We, we're, we're traveling and we got that, we got that uh, taken care of. But no, I'm going to be in Luke 15 this morning. Um, thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled that my family could make it. Um, and I thought about a lot about what I wanted to preach today. And the Lord really kind of spoke to me through this passage and I wanted to at least share uh, some thoughts on Luke 15 and the parable of the lost son for you. So I'm going to be in Luke 15, um, 11 through 32 this morning uh, as we begin our time together. Um, you know, everyone faces challenges in their life. In fact, we know that challenges and suffering will come. That's sort of a, a um, it, it's stated in the Bible. We know that's going to happen. It's part of life. Sometimes those challenges are minor. And are overcome with relative ease. But sometimes, though, the challenges are so great uh, and the depth of despair is so bad that it seems impossible to overcome. The Bible is filled with countless examples of people who were at the end of their road with no hope to get out. And one of those that comes to mind for me is the prodigal son. The prodigal son endured hardship and misery, a lot of it to his own doing. And really, we could go into a lot of detail about the son, but today, I want to share the story of the two sons, a tale of two sons and their faithful father. If you're not familiar with this passage, so there's three parables in Luke 15 that are Jesus' response to the accusations that are made by his adversaries, the scribes and the Pharisees. The truth is, they hated Jesus. They hated him for exposing their self-righteous hypocrisy, and in return, they accused Jesus of being powered by Satan himself. One way they tried to discredit Jesus was by attacking him for associating with what they thought were the lower groups of Jewish society, the tax collectors and the sinners, that Jesus associated with Satan's people as they viewed them instead of God's people as they viewed themselves, proved the Pharisees and scribes argued that Jesus couldn't be the son of God or from God. 
Like the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, this parable depicts God's joy over the salvation of the lost. But while the first two parables emphasize God's part in seeking sinners, this third one focuses on something different. It focuses more on our ability to pursue the lost. It's a dramatic, moving story of the sinner's despair and of God's love and eager forgiveness for such sorrow. And it's a little bit of a marathon, so we're going to read it. Um, join me in, the, in your copy of the Word of God as we read Luke 15, uh, 11 through 32. I'm in the ESV today. Uh, and he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against him and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother is dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. All right, as we look at this story, the first part of it deals with the prodigal sons. We're going to look at the prodigal son first. Uh, if we look at verses 11 and 12, we see that the prodigal son is separated. The prodigal son is separated from his father. Verses 11 and 12 say this, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property coming to me. And he divided his property between them. We start off with the younger son. Uh, requesting to receive the assets that will eventually be his so that he can go on his way. In today's world, it'd be the equivalent of a child asking for their inheritance early and then departing from the family. The boy is probably in his late teens since he's still single. 
And historically, Jewish law dictates that estates were divided up at the death of the father. If Jewish law was followed here, um, the son would receive half of what the elder son receives, or one-third of the, of the estate. If you turn to Deuteronomy, uh, you'll find the explanation for how estates should be divided. In Deuteronomy 21.17, the word of God says this, But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the, first fr he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now, as I was preparing... There is some suggestion, there was a little bit of a debate in the commentaries and in, in the other things I was reading, um, that in Jewish law, that the father has the right to break up the holdings before his death. There's sort of talk about a loophole. Um, others argue that no, the son's request treats the father as if he's already dead. And regardless of which side you look at, it is clear from the text that the son is looking to sever ties with his father and go away. The son's request is granted graciously by his father. Once he receives his portion, all other claims to the estate are ended, and the young son is free to go. You can only imagine, as a father, how that must have felt. I'm sad that any second that my children are away from me, and I can't fathom how I would comprehend knowing my son wanted to separate from me. That father must have been hurt and injured that his son left him and not only left him but treated him as dead he was treated as dead it must have really been a painful time for the father and the older son saw this which may explain his anger and we'll get to that a little bit later but apparently the older son chose not to go his own way i think it's an older kid thing um at least that's what i tell my brother um but he but keep his holdings at home perhaps it's a parallel here of the heavenly father letting the sinner go his own way. So the prodigal son is separated. Once he separates, we see in verses 13 through 15 that the prodigal son is living a life of sin. Living a life of sin. Verses 13 through 15 say this in Luke 11. Uh, Luke 15, chapter 11. Luke 15, sorry. 13 through 11 says this. Um, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that, he had, all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. The young son's life falls apart pretty much the second that he leaves. Anxious to gain his freedom, he turns his inheritance into cash, he goes to a distant land, he squanders his possessions, he gets rid of everything. In fact, the picture painted here in a passage is almost like he's just tossing all of his possessions into the wind. And it's used elsewhere in Luke, by Luke. Um, Luke one fifty one. he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Luke 16, chapter 1, or verse 1 says this, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him and that man was wasting his possessions. Acts 5.37, after, after him Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. 
He throws away everything that he has. He throws away his wealth by living an undisciplined and wild life. The next verse uh, in this chapter paints a picture of a young man on a spending spree. Spending things of little or no value. You know, when you're young, um, I think if I was honest with myself, I probably got caught up in that spending spree. That first paycheck was, it, it was burning the hole in my pocket and I was anxious to spend it. And if I look back, it was probably spent on things that didn't matter. Um, the world tells us that's okay today. All of us, I think, can relate to that feeling. And it's often the case that it doesn't turn out well. And it didn't here either. The son's approach to life will lead to his downfall. And he will quick, quickly find himself in a dire situation. Now, some of the son's hard times, in his defense, I'm going to take a, a, the other side of this for just a second. In his own defense, some of this wasn't his own doing. I mean, okay, he did go out and spent all that he had and had nothing to show for it. But now comes another blow. Famine. He didn't anticipate a famine. And in his defense, he could not have predicted that a famine would come. But that doesn't excuse his recklessness. It's a severe famine, since the adjective used to describe it in Hebrew is askira, or strong. And it's used throughout the Bible uh, when they mean strong. So it's a strong famine. Nature makes his bad situation worse. His world is collapsing. He has no money, no family, and is suffering in a distant land. This boy is in trouble. He enters into poverty and has nowhere to turn. He has a couple choices. One is stay in that cycle, or two, develop a plan and try to get out. He does develop a plan to attack his despair. Desperate for food and funds, he seeks employment. Seems like a logical thing to do. Um, he works for a Gentile, though, um, because the nature of his work shows that. He, he's sent to an animal farm to supervise pigs. This was the most dishonorable work for a Jew. <laughs> since the pigs were unclean animals. And there's several verses in the Bible that show that uh, Jews viewed pigs as unclean. Um, Leviticus 11.7 says this, And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Deuteronomy 14.8, And the pig, because it parts the hoof, but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh shall you not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Isaiah 65, 4, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Isaiah 66, 17, those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. Basically, the son has taken the worst possible job that he could think of and one that no Jew would even want. He's clearly taking whatever that he can get. He's separated. He's living a life of sin. And the prodigal son is, is going to face the consequences. He's going to face the consequences. And we look at verse 16 in our passage today. Verse 16 says this, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The job is unable to meet the son's needs. He still suffers from hunger. In fact, the pigs are better off than he is. And he says that. 
He strongly desires to have as much to eat as the pigs do. Their food may have been sweet bean from carob or locust tree or a bitter thorny berry, we think. But the son wants the meal of unclean animals and can't have it. Scenario is the worst possible one that he could find himself in. The prodigal son is separated. He lives a life of sin. He faces the consequences of his sin. But here's the best part, or one of the best parts of the story. The son is converted and returns. If we look at verses 17 through 21. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The son's situation, I think, finally registers with him. It finally hits him just how far he's plunged. And maybe, maybe it sinks into him that that old expression may not be true. The grass may not always be greener on the other side. At this point, there's two things the son can do. Dig himself an even bigger hole, double down, make his situation worse, or put his hope in the Lord and conquer his despair. The struggling son makes the right decision. He decides to acknowledge his situation before God and to his father. And the lesson that he... The way he does it here is instructive to us. The son will act quickly and humbly. He knows that he's given up all rights to sonship and inheritance, but is better off to throw himself on the mercy of his father than to remain in a faraway land, living a life lower than unclean animals and suffering from hunger. He plans to turn to come home, openly confessing he was a failure. His attempt to live carelessly and independent of any constraints has resulted in something lower than the human existence. So I, I picture this here as I'm, as I'm working through this passage. When I was a kid, my brother and I, whenever we had to go ask our dad for something, we'd pre-rehearse it, right? Like, hey, we're, if it's a big thing, like we're going to practice what we're going to say and who's going to say what and who's going to be the first one to talk, right? And we never actually did it the way we practiced it ever. It never worked that way. But so here, I think the son's sort of practicing what he's going to say. He's, he decides what he's going to tell his father. He's going to place himself at his father's discretion, assert no rights, and recognize that he has no claim to anything. I mean, truthfully... If we were honest about it, he's unworthy of being welcomed back as a family member if the father upholds Jewish law. His request is simply for daily care and sustenance as a day laborer. All he's asking for is for his dad to treat him the same as one of his hired servants. His request shows that he wants to be a minimal burden. He accepts the consequences of his choices, has no excuses, but only comes with confession and a humble request. I think this shows us what true repentance looks like. No claims, just reliance on God's mercy and provision. I would also think, though, that it means he knows his father's character. The father must have been a kind, forgiving, and honest father and a businessman with a good reputation. The son knows this and is relying on this knowledge. It matters how we treat people. 
Our character matters more than we know. The son's confession to his father paints a picture of true, actual repentance. He comes to his father bearing nothing but what he needs. He comes with no demands, no blame, no arguments. Just a humble plea. All right, as we shift to part two of the story, let's look at the father's acceptance. So we talked about the prodigal son. Let's look at the father's acceptance of him. In verses 22 through 24, that says this. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. The son departs from where he is and carries out his plan to return and confess. But little, little does he know the response that awaits him. The father spots him while he's still a long ways off and reacts immediately with compassion and acceptance. The son had to have been the whole time wondering what his response will be. But he doesn't have to wait long to find out. His father runs to him, hugs him. Which that, talk about breaking all the Jewish protocols, that's about breaking every single one there is. He runs to him, gives him a giant hug. The father expresses his joy by greeting his son with a kiss. Despite the warm welcome, it would have been easy for the son to say, all right, I don't need to say anything, because that was before he said anything. He could have just left it there, but he didn't. Despite the warm welcome, the son still offers his confession, which leaves the son in the hands of the father. Father doesn't debate, doesn't argue, doesn't ask questions, doesn't say, doesn't hit him upside the head and say, Where, what's wrong with you? He just accepts and embraces him. It would have been easy for the father to see through this confession. I mean, after all the son had put him through, it would have been understandable for the father to dismiss him, to tell him to go away. There's no indication here in the text that the prodigal son's return is anything negative or contrived. None. Those who come humbly before God can know that he will receive them. The son could not outsin his father's forgiveness, and you can't either. All right. The father's joy continues. He welcomes his, him back with full privileges. The servants are told to clothe the son immediately in a robe and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. In the blink of an eye, the son goes from destitution to restoration. The father calls for a celebration in honor of his son's return. In fact, he kills a fattened calf to celebrate, which sounds like quite a party. There's dancing. You got the fattened calf killed. Sounds like a party. The celebration is a celebration of a resurrection where the father regained a lost son. New life and recovery of the lost are what results from true repentance. But there's another part of this story. And as I looked at some of the, the reading about this passage, this is sort of the part of the story that kind of gets brushed aside. Nobody ever talks about the third part of the story, which is the elder son, because he's got a story here too. There's a brother. So the elder son, if we look at this passage, number one is angry. The elder son is angry. And if we look at verses 25 through 28, the first half of 28 says this. Now his older son who was in the field and he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what those things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. 
Now, all the attention turns to the elder brother's response, who from this point dominates the story with his father. Apparently, the older brother was always a son who did what he was supposed to do. As an older child, I can speak that that is true. No, I'm just kidding. Um, my parents would argue that. Um, he, had, he had been working in the field during his brother's return. As he returns from a hard day's work, he realizes that something is going on although it's unclear who this is happening for. And he seems very interested in what is happening, which I suppose is a natural response given the surprising situation. One of his father's servants tells him the reason for the party. The father has killed a calf because the younger brother has returned healthy. In verse 27, we see the reason for the father's happiness, the safe return of a healthy son, and the father has taken him back with joy. But the elder brother is angry and not pleased with the response of his father. So the elder son is angry, number one. Number two, he's protesting his father's response. The second half of 28 to verse 30 says this. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. The father takes initiative and tries to get the brother to join in the celebration. The reason why is because reconciliation with the son should also extend across the whole family. And I'm sure that discussion that begins between the father and his older son was a sight to see and hear. I would have liked to have heard it. I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall. The older brother focuses on himself in opposition to his brother. He demands justice, making comparisons with his father's treatment of him. You did this for him, but you didn't do it for me, and I've been here the whole time with you. The father's joy contrasts with the elder brother's protest, but it's all a matter of perspective. Oftentimes at our house, something happens that one of our boys says isn't fair. And truthfully, it may not be. But the definition of fairness Depends on the perspective of the participants. The elder brother kind of lays it out to his dad. He explains his position to his dad. One of the commentators mentioned the parable's deep irony, which allows this to be called the parable of reversal. First, the son who was lost in his outside is now inside, and the brother who was inside complains from the outside. It's kind of a weird parable, uh, a parable of reversal. In addition, the son who is faithful and obedient, even to the point of working like a slave, he doesn't get a reward or a celebration. While the son who wandered and squandered is given a huge celebration. The younger son felt fortunate to become only a simple servant. The older brother resented that. In effect, the older son is demanding justice from his father. The elder brother's concern for justice is a normal response, probably. It seems unfair. But the point is that God's action is gracious and not deserved. Repentance yields God's kindness, which wipes the slate clean and is a reason to rejoice. A proper response is not to compare how you were treated in relationship to the situation you face, but to remember, or what God did for this person and not for you, but to remember that repentance leads to the same outcome for everybody. So it is justice. It is fair. 
The brother is so consumed by the issue of fairness that he cannot rejoice at the beneficial transformation that has come to his brother. We see the prodigal son. We see the father's acceptance of him. We see the, the elder son's anger and protest of his father's response. But now we hear the father's explanation. The father's explanation is found in verses 31 and 32, and he says this, And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father has a ready reply. He's waiting for it. He knows it's coming. The father has a ready reply for the complaints of his elder son. He speaks to the concerns first and then moves on to the issue of his brother. The father's reply is as gentle as the son's complaint was harsh. He addresses him tenderly and he affirms the faithfulness of the elder brother and the special place that he has in his heart. He accepts what he said is true, that he's always been at my side. He reminds the son that all he owns belongs to him. Neither the father's activity nor the brother's return in any way diminishes the status of the older brother. Second issue that he addresses then is the younger brother. The father will not allow the son's complaints any validity, nor will he allow the elder brother to separate himself from his brother. The father affirms that not only is the celebration appropriate, it's necessary. It was morally right to rejoice given the circumstances of return. I mean, we're talking about a resurrection of sorts. A dead brother is now alive. What was lost has been found. That situation should result in deep joy and abundant celebration, not questions about fairness or justice. The father's reply matches his remarks in Luke 15, 24. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The Lord Jesus teaches two truths in this parable. First, an absolute reversal results from repentance. Repentance is about true change, a literal new birth and a transformation. Not only is that repented son restored, but he's also welcomed by the heavenly father with joy and total acceptance. As great as the celebration was for, that the father put on for the younger son, imagine, imagine the great celebration that erupts when a sinner comes to the father and enters his care in heaven. Imagine the celebration that happens. There's a call, number two, the second thing we see here from Jesus is that there's a call to respond to the repentant one, not with comparison or jealousy, but with the joy that reflects the father's response to his sons. If God can be gracious for, and for, for forgiving, so can people. This parable is indeed the parable, the parable of reversal, and the example of the father is particularly instructive. He's running to his son, arms outstretched, ready to hug the returning child and rejoicing in the return. Such joy is in heaven over the one who repents. The prodigal son reminds disciples that God calls them to seek the lost and to rejoice when that search is successful. Brothers and sisters, that's the message of this parable, to seek the lost and rejoice when they return. Maybe today 
you find yourself in the same position as the sun. At the end of the road, not knowing where to turn next, remember, remember, you can't out God's forgiveness. Or maybe today, you have a relationship with someone that is strained, like the father and his son. Maybe they're struggling and battling against the ways of the world. Forgive them, seek them out, love them, and point them toward the most important relationship of all. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for the opportunity to spread your word, and I thank you for um, the prodigal son and for that story to remind us, Father, that true repentance is a joy to you. And I pray that you help us as we seek the lost to, to spread your message and your word across the world and wherever we are. Just may you be glorified through all we do and say. I ask these things in your name. Amen.